There we go. <laughs> well, as you know, we've been going through the eight marks of the church, and you see all eight of them listed there, and we're in the sacrament observing church today. And uh, you know, too, that each week we've been talking about different urban legends or myths, and <clears throat> um, because there are myths in the, about the church, too, as pertaining to these eight marks. And so as we think about an urban legend or a myth today, um, how many of you have heard that there are bodies buried in the Hoover Dam? Right? They died because they fell into the cement and they, they couldn't get out, and so they're, they're buried. They're forever entombed in the Hoover Dam. The only problem is that this is one urban legend that just won't die. While there were many fatalities involved in the making of the Hoover Dam, zero involved workers slipping into the mix and being covered up with concrete. It's not hard to see its prominence in human consciousness because... There are six bodies that are buried in Montana's Fort Peck Dam. That did happen here. They fell into the mix, and they couldn't get them out. And so six, uh, six bodies are entombed there at Fort Peck's Dam. Now, just to help you understand about the Hoover Dam, it was built in interlocking blocks. And this is the reason why they said no one has been entombed in the cement in the Hoover Dam. They uh, were built in interlocking blocks. Each block was five feet high. The smallest blocks were about 25 feet by 25 feet square, and the largest blocks were about 25 feet by 60 feet. Concrete was delivered to each block in buckets, eight cubit yards at a time. After each bucket was delivered, five or six men called puddlers would stamp and vibrate the concrete into place, packing it down to ensure there was no air pockets in it. <clears throat> each time a bucket was emptied, the level of concrete would raise from two inches up to six inches depending on the size of the block, with only a slight increase in the level at any one time. and the presence of several men watching the placement, it would have been virtually impossible for anyone to be buried in the concrete. So there are no bodies buried in Hoover Dam. So it was two inches to six inches that it would raise. So, I mean, unless you fell in, you couldn't stand back up, right? That, that didn't happen. Now, the official number of fatalities involved in building the Hoover Dam is 96. There were men who died at the dam site classified as industrial fatalities from such causes as drowning, blasting, falling rocks or slides, falls from the canyon walls, being struck by heavy equipment, truck accidents, etc. Industrial fatalities do not include deaths from heat, pneumonia, and heart trouble. <clears throat> so these things were happening. You know, They were blasting and People got hit by rocks and died. There were people that fell. One uh, man in particular fell 400 feet from one of the cliffs uh, into the canyon below and died. And so, so this is a myth. It's not true. There's no bodies entombed in the Hoover Dam. Um, and so there are many common myths about the church that are misguided at best and dangerous at worst. And we're looking at another one today. And the, the myth is this. You can emphasize the sacraments as much as you want and be a healthy church. <clears throat> You're like, well, how is that a, a myth, emphasizing it? Well, just emphasizing it and talking about it isn't what Jesus required of us. It, it's, not, it's about practicing it. It's about observing these two sacraments of baptism and holy communion. And this myth, if believed, can be dangerous because it neglects the two main ways Jesus desired for us to identify with him and his gospel together as a body of believers. And second, it robs us of the two most compelling and consistent reminders of what Jesus has done for us and our union with him. 
And so we know that this is a myth because Jesus said a clear mark of a healthy church would be a church filled with people who remember him and remember they are united with him through observing and practicing baptism and communion. So it's more than just emphasizing it, saying to each other, hey, this is really important. It's important that we be baptized. It's important that we take communion together. It's more than just words. It's action. It's observing and it's practicing it. And so as we think about this um, myth today, as we think about this uh, fourth mark of the, of the church, let's just pause and commit it to the Lord in prayer. Lord, we come to you today. We thank you that your word is true. And through it, we can dispel these myths about the church, Lord God. And we can be, uh, understand the truth of what you've called us to do as a sacrament-observing church. Lord, today, as, as this message goes forth, as your word goes forth, I pray that these people would hear your voice and not mine. Lord God, I pray that your uh, transforming power would just go out from your word today and reach each heart and mind, Lord God. Would you transform us through your word? And so, Lord, we just uh, sit now in anticipation of what you have for us today. And we just ask all this in your precious son's name. Amen. And so the sacrament observing church, you know what we've been doing each week Each week uh, with these messages? We're looking at Jesus' teaching about it. We're looking at the early church's teaching about it. We're looking at the apostles' teaching about these each marks, each mark. And so uh, today we're going to be looking at the teaching of Jesus and the early church and the apostles as it pertains to baptism and, and communion. And so we're going to look first at the teachings of Jesus. And so... Um, Again, we're going to be jumping around in the Bible, so I hope you have your, your fingers are nimble today. We're looking at Luke chapter 22, verses 14 to 20, as we see Jesus teaching about communion here. And this is what God's Word says. <clears throat> when the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table, and he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. After taking the cup, he gave thanks and said, Take this and divide it among you, for I tell you I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, gave thanks, and broke it, and gave it to them, saying, This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. And so we see the significance in Jesus' teaching here of communion. This is Luke's retelling of the Last Supper. Jesus and his disciples are enjoying the Passover meal together. This wasn't uncommon for Jews. They did this uh, since the time of the Exodus. But here it was a little bit different. As Jesus is about ready to give his life on the cross for all of humanity. This will be the last time that Jesus eats the Passover with them until until it finds its fulfillment in the kingdom of God. And Jesus was not going to drink wine with them again until God established his kingdom on earth. We're still waiting for that day. Jesus then explains the significance of the bread and wine as it pertains to his death. The bread represented his body that he was giving for them. Jesus experienced a scourging that actually killed other men. Jesus went through the scourging. There were guys that went through the same kind of scourging that Jesus did and passed away from that. They never made it to the cross because that scourging was so horrible so horrific and so here jesus goes through the scourging he has a crown of thorns that's embedded in his head nails are hammered through his wrists and feet a spear was thrust into his side jesus body was given for us and that's what he's helping his disciples understand through the last supper 
Now, the, the wine symbolized his blood that would be poured out for all of humanity. The lacerations that were opened up on Jesus' back during the scourging caused his blood to flow. The crown of thorns being embedded in his scalp created open wounds that allowed his blood to be poured out. The nail holes in his hands and feet uh, you know, created openings for blood to flow. The spear thrust into his side allowed the blood and water that had accumulated in his torso to pour out. All of that was done for us. Hebrews 9.22b says, Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Jesus did that. His blood was poured out. That's what we remember with the Jews today. And perhaps the disciples didn't understand the significance of what Jesus was saying at this point, but within a day, day they would understand completely. <clears throat> Jesus was modeling for the disciples what they were supposed to do. It was not just emphasizing the importance of the Last Supper, but it was actually participating in and observing the Last Supper again and again. He said, every time you do this, you remember what I've done for you. Jesus also instructed his disciples about baptism. If we turn over to Matthew chapter 28, <clears throat> we see he talks about baptism here. As you're turning there, just a little bit of background, Matthew 28, 16 to 20, has the heading of Jesus gives the great commission. This is the mission of every church. It's our mission here as IWUB Church. Pursue, grow, and multiply disciples. It's at the top of our bulletin. That mission is there. We have banners at the front of the sanctuaries you see over here to my left, your right, that talk about our mission. We're now including it at the bottom of our weekly email updates. It's included on page three of the yearbook. It's part of the message on the inside cover of the Spiritual Life Journal. And it's, um, it's on the back of all three challenge coins. If you don't have yours yet, you can pick that up at the Welcome Center today as well. We have challenge coins for you today for the different themes that we've had over the past two years and then love one another for this year. But it's on the back, Pursue, Grow, and Multiply Disciples. That's our mission, but it's the mission of every church. It's the Great Commission. And so part of the growth process of a new believer is recognizing the need to go through believer's baptism. Believer's baptism is an outward expression of an inward decision. The believer is letting others know they have given their lives wholly to Jesus Christ. He is their Lord and Savior. And so we see this in, in Matthew chapter 28, verses 19 and 20. This is Jesus' commission. This is what he's commanding his disciples to do, and that includes us because we are his disciples. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them, there it is, in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you, and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. And so Jesus modeled baptism for us. We see that in Matthew chapter 3, verses 13 to 17. We find his baptism um, <clears throat> experience there. He's baptized by John the Baptist, but John the Baptist is reluctant to baptize Jesus because he knows who he is. He's the Son of God. This is who John's been telling other people all about. He says, this guy's coming. I'm not even worthy to untie his sandals. And then he comes and, and, and Jesus says, hey, I want you to baptize. He's like, what? No. He feels like he should be baptized by Jesus. But Jesus tells him that his baptism is to fulfill all righteousness, which appeases John. And he consents to do it. And as Jesus comes up out of the water, we see the Holy Spirit descend in the form of a dove. And we hear the voice of God Almighty approving of Jesus. 
And so Jesus modeled the importance of observing the sacrament of baptism, and he commissioned us to continue to observe it. But what did the early church have to say about this? We just have to turn back to Acts chapter 2. And so as you're turning there, it's just a, a reminder. We've been talking a lot out of Acts chapter 2 as it's been, as it's been pertaining to each of these marks because this is the early church. This is the establishment of the, of the very first church of Jesus Christ. And so in Acts chapter 2, verses 38 and 42, we're going to see baptism and communion. But a little background as you're turning there. As we've mentioned over the past few weeks, Acts 2 is talking about Pentecost. This is the time when God poured out his spirit on the apostles and they preached the gospel of Jesus Christ with boldness. Peter is the primary apostle who addresses the crowd. And at the end of his address, we see the crowd's reaction in verse 27, or 37 of Acts chapter 2. <clears throat> when the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And then we see Peter's response here. He replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. That's verses 38 and 39. So we see that the early church not only needed to repent, which is a 180-degree turn from their sin, but they also needed to be baptized. Now, Peter is not saying that baptism forgives our sins here. Repentance is what does that. Baptism aligns us with Christ and other disciples of Jesus Christ. Warren, uh, Warren Wearsby <clears throat> says this, Acts 2.38 should not be used to teach salvation by baptism, if baptism is essential for salvation, it seems strange that Peter said nothing about baptism in his other sermons that we see in Acts chapter 3 and chapter 5 and chapter 10. In fact, the people in the home of Cornelius received the Holy Spirit before they were baptized, as you see in Acts 10, 48 to 40, 44 to 48. Since believers are commanded to be baptized, it's important that we have a clean conscience by obeying but we must not think that baptism is a part of salvation. If so, then nobody in Hebrews 11, that's the hall of faith, was saved because none of them was ever baptized. So baptism isn't what saves us, it's the repentance, but this is how uh, Peter's making clear that baptism is an important part of being a disciple of Christ. It's how we identify with Christ. His death, burial, and resurrection. We see here that Peter encouraged the crowd to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. This is significant because John the Baptist was already baptizing people with water for repentance. They were repenting of their sin before God, making a commitment before God. But the footnote in the NIV Life Application Bible says, John baptized people as a sign that they had asked God to forgive their sins and had decided to live as he wanted them to live. This was before Jesus had died on the cross, was buried, and came alive again to take the punishment for humanity's sins. From that point on, those who believed in Jesus and repented of their sins would be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ, identifying with his saving power through his death, burial, and resurrection. Peter used many other words, as we see in verse 40 here in Acts chapter 2, to warn the crowd, and he pleaded with them. And in verse 41, we see the result of what uh, that pleading and many other words, it says about 3,000 accepted the message, repented, and were baptized in one day. I'd like to see that. That would be a lot of fun, wouldn't it? 3,000? Wow. The early church not only taught about the importance of baptism, it also taught about the importance of communion. 
We see that in Acts chapter 2, verse 42. The new believers devoted themselves to four things, as we see here. Let me read those verses, or that verse for you. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. And so we see those four things. First, to the apostles' teaching. It's like every day they were going to the temple court and they were hearing the preaching and teaching of the apostles. And then they would go to individual homes and they would probably talk about that and they would hear more teaching. And so they were committed to that. They were devoted to that. They were devoted to fellowship. The Greek word here is koinonia. And it certainly can have the idea of sharing everything, having in common, which we see in Acts chapter 2, verses 44 to 45. They do that. They sell their property and they give it to the, uh, to the apostles and everybody shares that. <clears throat> but I like what uh, Kenneth Gangle says. He says, here the believers fulfilled the words the Lord gave his disciples just before the, the crucifixion. A new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this all men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Boy, as we look at that theme for this year, love one another, you know, we're, we're doing this, we're fulfilling the words of the Lord Jesus as we fellowship together, as we love one another. The breaking of bread is referring to the Lord's Supper, to communion here. It was probably part of a regular meal, just like Jesus did at the, at the, the Passover meal, the Last Supper. They would uh, conclude the meal by remembering the body and blood of Christ until he returns. And then the fourth thing they were devoted to was prayer. This is talking about corporate prayer. They were getting together like we do on you know, Sunday mornings with worship-based prayer, on Wednesday nights with worship-based prayer. Any other times that we're gathering together and praying as a body is this corporate prayer. Now, it's noteworthy that these new believers were participating in these four things on a daily basis. It was a unique feature around Pentecost, but was not maintained or practical in later New Testament settings. You know, we don't get together every day, do we? But perhaps we should. You know, I'm thinking about the, the history of Idaville UB Church, and, and way back, they had revival services that lasted for months where people were coming together every night, and the front of the sanctuary was full of people that were turning their lives over to Christ. Wouldn't that be neat to go back to that again? Some of you are thinking, no, I don't think so. <laughs> that's okay. That's all right. But that's what was unique at Pentecost the early church not only taught about baptism and communion, they also observed and they practiced it. But what about the teaching of the apostles? Well, well let's flip back to Romans chapter 6. We see Paul's teaching here then in Romans chapter 6. I'll get there. He's talking about baptism here. Look at the words there. Romans 6, 1 to 4. This is what God's word says. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. We died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead, through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. That's the significance, importance of baptism. We're identifying with what Christ did. And we see that here. The Apostle Paul makes it clear how baptism connects us to Christ. A.T. Robertson says the picture in baptism points two ways. Backwards to Christ's death and burial, 
and to our death to sin and forwards to Christ's resurrection from the dead and to our new life pledged by the coming out of the watery grave to walk on the other side of the baptismal grave. Paul also taught about communion. So you have to flip back to 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 11, starting in verse 23. You know, this is one of the passages that I use when we observe communion together. And this is what God's Word says. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And so we see here that Paul received this message from the Lord when he was in Arabia for three years. That's from Galatians chapter 1, verses 15 to 18. Jesus enlightened Paul to what happened at the very first Lord's Supper. Paul wasn't there. Paul is then passing this message on to the Corinthian believers as something they should be observing and practicing. The Apostle Paul not only taught the importance of baptism and communion, he observed and he practiced them. And we see a metaphor, a picture then, of both baptism and communion in the body of Christ in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 22 to 23, which is uh, the passage that Debbie read for you today. Matt Kaiser says, as the body of Christ, we're the locust of Jesus' activity now, just as his physical body was during his earthly ministry. Matt goes on and he says, through baptism, we are not only united with Christ in his body, but picture his death and resurrection to the world around us. And so that's important, this baptism. Greg Laurie, if you're familiar with him and his ministry in Southern California, um, he talks about how they observe baptism at a cove on the beach in, in Orange County, California. And it, he says, inevitably, there will be people walking along the beach who, step, um, who stop and ask, what's happening? And they get to share the gospel with them. And sometimes those people that hear the gospel right there on the beach because of a beach baptism turn their lives over to Christ and go through baptism right away. Wade and Seth, our two oldest sons, were baptized in the Pacific Ocean when the church we attended in Southern California had their own beach baptism. And there were people who stopped and asked that same question, what's going on? And we were able to share with them what was happening. It was an outward expression of an inward decision. They decided to follow Christ. In 2019, I had the privilege of baptizing Wyatt and Alana, or Elena Durr at Fuller Lake with other individuals that we didn't know watching They were there at the little beach at Fuller Lake, and we went down into the water, and we talked about what baptism was, and and then we baptized this brother and sister there. Also in 2019, Alger Melton and I baptized Randy Bowder at a boat ramp in the Susquehanna River. And as we were doing that, another family came to launch their boat. And again, they got to observe what was happening And so we are a picture of Jesus' death and resurrection to the world around us when we participate in baptism. So as the body of Christ, Matt says, we are nourished and directed by him as the head of his body and are reminded about this uh, this every time we take communion. 
And so that's how this metaphor, this body of Christ fits into this. We are connected to Christ through baptism. We're connected to Christ through observing Holy Communion. So how will we know if this mark of the church marks our church? A couple of ways. We will see regular baptisms. Acts chapter 2, verse 38. Hey, I want to just encourage you. I was going back through my spreadsheet. I keep a spreadsheet of, you know, membership activity. You know, those that are, have joined the church, those that, that have asked to be removed from the membership roles, those that have accepted Christ, those uh, that have been baptized. I keep track of all of that stuff because I have to report to the headquarters once a year. <clears throat> and I was looking back over the spreadsheet all the way back into like 2015. And every year we've had someone, at least one person baptized. And so just over the past three years, in 2021, we had seven people who were baptized. In 2020, we had one person baptized. In 2019, there were eight people baptized. Guess what? We're seeing regular baptisms in this body. The second thing we'll see is we'll share communion on a regular basis. Now, our normal practice has been to observe communion um, um, the beginning of every quarter, so January, April, July, and October. We also observe communion during the Monday, Thursday, and Good Friday services, so April gets a little extra. <clears throat> Today we're going to observe Holy Communion because we're talking about the sacrament observing church. And so that's kind of important. Uh, we all, third, we will see uh, baptism as several things. A sacred act, that's what the early church saw. As a sign and symbol, which is what a, the apostle uh, Paul was talking about in Romans chapter 6 and a sacred initiation, as we see in 1 Corinthians <clears throat> uh, chapter 12, verses uh, 12 to 27. I'm not going to read those verses for you today, but I encourage you to look that one up. It's really, really good. It's just talking about one body and many parts. And so <clears throat> you're probably familiar with that if you, as you begin to read that. We're all connected to the body of Christ as disciples of Christ we are one unit made up of many parts. We all have different areas of giftedness that the Lord uses in cooperation to allow the body to function properly. And the fourth thing we'll see is to see communion as an opportunity to, to do four things. To remember Jesus. <clears throat> and so I want us to look back again at, at 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Verses, uh, starting in verse 23. I read it for you already, for I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after, this, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So we're remembering the Lord Jesus Christ. The second thing is that we remember to repent of sin. <clears throat> this is verse, verses 27 to 32 there in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. A man ought to examine himself before he eats of the bread and drinks of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without recognizing the body of the Lord eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many among you are weak and sick and a number of you have fallen asleep. But if, uh, let, me see, let me see if that's where I wanted to stop. Oh no, here we go. Verse 31. But if we judged ourselves, we would not come under judgment. Uh, when we are judged by the Lord, we are being disciplined so that we will not be condemned with the world. And so we're going to observe communion following the message today. And I don't know how it works, but we see here that many among the Corinthian believers were weak and sick and some had died. 
It appears that the weakness and sickness and even death were the result of not recognizing the body of the Lord Jesus when they practiced the Lord's Supper. Warren Wearsby says it's a serious thing to come to the communion with an unprepared heart. It's a, it's, it is also a serious thing to receive the supper in a careless manner because the Corinthians had been sinning in their observing of the Lord's Supper. God had disciplined them. For this cause, many were weak and sickly among you, and many sleep or died. Warren Wearsby says that the Lord's Supper can be a blessing and can provide spiritual growth if we come with the right attitude. He says, how can it be a blessing? He gives four ways. First, we should look back. Verses 23 to 26. It's the broken bread reminds us of Jesus' body and the cup reminds us of Jesus' blood shed for us. The second half of verse 26, we should look ahead. We observe the Lord's Supper until he returns. Third, we should look within. Verses 27 to 28 and 31 to 32. We do not have to be worthy to take communion, but we have to do it in a worthy manner. Wearsby says we have to examine our own hearts, judge our sins, and confess them to the Lord. And then fourth, we should look around, verses 33 to 34. We have to discern the Lord's body, the church, and be unified and loving. We need to love one another. And then the final thing, the, of the four things we were talking about, is we, we need to remember to reconcile with other believers. I'm sorry, this is the third of four. <clears throat> And again, we see this in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 17 to 21, and 33 and 34. Let's talk about reconciling. The Corinthian believers had tainted the Lord's Supper by allowing cliques to develop and selfishness to prevail. The rich brought food, uh, a lot of food, and ate together, while the poor had little to no food and were not included with the rich. What would happen here is the rich would come early because they were the owners of the businesses. They were the landowners. They didn't have to do much work. So they would come and they would start feasting ahead of time with this agape feast. And then those that were the slaves that were out working, they would finally make it in uh, to the agape feast. But all the good rich food was gone by this point. And so they had tainted this. It wasn't including everyone. And so Paul was like, you're not doing what's right. It was supposed to be, this agape feast was supposed to be a meal that included everyone and provided for all, and it wasn't doing that. And then the fourth thing is we need to remember to rejoice at Christ's return. That's verse 26 in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. So our desire is to have a church filled with people who remember Jesus and remember they are united with Jesus through observing and practicing baptism and holy communion. Now, we had you take that survey last year as we were doing strategic planning, uh, this survey for the Restore Renewal Ministries. There was one of the five survey questions that was, at, that was in the top ten of the least difficult for us as a church. That means that we're, we feel like we're doing this really, really well, and this was the one. It was nine out of ten. Our church provides regular, consistent opportunities to receive communion. So you recognize that. Once a quarter and around Easter, a lot more, Communion is for disciples of Jesus Christ, those who have believed in him and repented of their sins. It doesn't have any significance for someone who is not a disciple of Jesus Christ. They're not remembering the broken body of Jesus or that his blood was poured out for the forgiveness of their sins. They're just going through the motions if they even come to take communion. We'll be observing communion at the end here, and today could be the first time you observe communion as a disciple of Jesus Christ. Here's the gospel. <laughs> We're all sinners. We're born that way. No one is exempt. 
You're like, well, I'm a good person. You may be, but it doesn't make you sinless. <laughs> we have all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's what Paul tells us in Romans 3.23. We don't reach the perfection of God because of that sin in our lives. Every one of us has chosen to do something wrong at some time in our lives, whether we've told a lie, taken something that doesn't belong to us, used God's name as a cuss word, have had uh, sinful thoughts. And God tells us through Paul in Romans chapter 6, verse 23, that the wages of sin is death. What we earn, what we deserve for our sin is to be separated from God forever. But that wasn't God's design for his people that he created. In Romans chapter 5, verse 8, he says, I love you. And he says, I demonstrate my love for you in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God's like, my, my love for you is never ending. I want you to be in a relationship with me, and while you don't want anything to do with me, I still sent Jesus to die on the cross to take your punishment. And he just is waiting for us to respond to that. In 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verses three and four, or chapter 15, verses 3 and 4, we see that Jesus fulfilled Scripture. He fulfilled Old Testament Scripture. Paul writes this, he says, you know, I'm passing on you what, what I have heard, you know, how that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures and that he was buried, and that he came alive again the third day, according to the scriptures. Jesus fulfilled those Old Testament scriptures when he died, was buried, and came alive again. And we see Paul telling us exactly what we need to do in Romans chapter 10, verses 9 and 10, that if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you confess and are saved. Maybe you're ready to take that first next step on the back of your communication card today, and it's this. Be saved today by confessing with my mouth that Jesus is Lord and believing in my heart that God raised him from the dead. If you make that decision today, this table is for you. You can remember the broken body and poured out blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. If you mark that on your communication card, put your name on the front, put it in the box so we can get in contact with you. Where did the rest of the other survey questions fall? Three of the remaining four questions were in the top 15 and most difficult for us. 11 out of 15 was this. There is a regular teaching in our church on the meaning and purpose of baptism and communion. I hope that today was helpful for you in understanding the meaning and purpose of baptism and communion, how it connects us with Christ. And I'm committing to you today to strive to provide regular teaching about the meaning and purpose of baptism and communion, especially when it comes up in Scripture as we go verse by the verse through books of the Bible and when we observe these two sacraments. 13 out of 15 is our church provides regular opportunities for people to be baptized, and I can remember the last person who was baptized in our church. Most of us know that we usually provide one baptismal service a year. It's right after the church service and right before the vacation Bible school picnic in August. But I want you to know we're not limited to just one time a year. There are local churches that have baptismals in their sanctuary that are willing to allow us to use it. There are portable baptismal units that can be used indoors. So don't ever feel like, oh, i got to wait. No. There's the, a creek in the Appalachian Trail, too, isn't there? Yeah. Maybe you're wondering, well, I, I, I don't know who's been baptized most recently. So here's the names of the people who were baptized in the past three years. Last year, Stuart Gephardt. He's a young little fella. He's got a great name. <laughs> Not spelled the same as mine, but a great name, Stuart. Um, you know, he comes Wednesday nights and, and some Sunday mornings. Silas Brown. And 
the whole family, Joe, Marcy, Alistair, and Josephine Wynn. In 2020, Keith Strine was baptized in the Appalachian Trail in a creek in the winter. <laughs> it was great. It was great, I'm telling you. 2019, Willow Tony, Christopher Sobble and his mom, Jen, Brenda Weibel, Jeremy Melton, Randy Bowder in the Susquehanna, and Wyatt and Elena Durr at Fuller Lake. Now you know. Now you know who they are. So that's important. We're committed to observing baptism whenever individuals are ready to take that step of faith. 14 out of 15 in the survey questions that people in our church know what baptism is, why it's important to their life and the life of the church, and have been baptized. I hope that today's message, again, has helped everyone to understand what baptism is and why it's important to your life and the life of the church. And if you've not participated in Believer's Baptism, I'd like to encourage you to take that step of spiritual growth. That's the second next step today, and that's to indicate my desire to participate in Believer's Baptism. The fifth question is in the middle as it pertains to most or least difficult for our church, and it was this, the people in our church know what communion is and why it's important to their life and the life of the church and look forward to receiving communion. I hope that's true of you today. As it pertains to our vision, a couple of core values, we are a family that is loving, caring, and welcoming. This includes times around the Lord's table. It also includes helping new believers take the growth step into baptism. Our leadership strives to be led by Jesus, to lead more like Jesus so that we can lead more to Jesus. We want to follow the lead of Jesus, the early church and the apostles, as it pertains to observing baptism and communion. And as we lead more to Jesus, they will participate in both baptism and communion. Our core focus is the Great Commission to pursue, grow, and multiply disciples. It comes right from Matthew chapter 28 that we talked about today. And under our annual goals, we have a a goal of having a 10% increase in the pursuit of holiness as evidenced through salvation, baptisms, and accountability. <clears throat> you know, as we prepare to take Holy Communion today, I know it's a longer service, and I appreciate you being patient, but this is so important. I don't want us to miss this. We've been struggling, as the surveys are showing us, to understand the importance and value of baptism and Holy Communion. But as we prepare for communion, I would... I'm going to open up the altar today because I, I want to encourage you to do one of the four things that we talked about, and that's either just to come forward and remember Jesus. Maybe you just need to remember him today. Maybe you need to remember to repent of your sins today. And the altar's open for that. Maybe you need to remember to reconcile with a fellow believer. Do that today. If there's someone here that you're kind of at odds with, go grab them. Go grab them. Don't wait. And don't come in an unworthy manner to the Lord's table. Reconcile today. And then it's also open for you to remember to rejoice in the Lord's coming. And so the worship team is going to come. We're just going to sing quietly the song, I love you, Lord. You stand with us. And as we're singing that, you just come forward. And as this time uh, ends of coming to the altar, then we'll partake of Holy Communion. But you come as the worship team leads us. Would you stand with us?